This is an ABC podcast. Hello and welcome to this week's Health Report with me, Norman Swan. Today, a relatively common but scary eye problem. My eye became perforated in the morning, all of a sudden exploded and all this fluid just came out of my left eye and the pain through my temple, I got extremely frightened. But Australian research is coming to the rescue. That's later. Plus, what's the best way of rehabilitating someone in the hours and days after they've had a stroke? And two significant studies which have just been published into a common developmental problem in childhood which can seriously affect the rest of that person's life. Autism spectrum disorder, which is thought to affect one in every 150 children in Australia. The first study was into whether intervening two years before autism spectrum disorder is normally diagnosed, when the child is still a baby, can reduce autism symptoms. The second looked at what does and does not cause autism. The lead author of that first paper was Andrew Whitehouse, who's Professor of Autism Research at the Telethon Kids Institute and the Autism Cooperative Research Centre. Welcome to The Health Report. G'day, Norman. So let's, let's define what is autism spectrum disorder. So autism spectrum disorder is a what we call a neurodevelopmental condition, which means that something happens early on in development to make the brain develop differently to what we typically expect. Now, we don't know a great deal about, well, we know a little bit about the genes, we know a little bit about the brain, but not enough for us to diagnose using uh, those biological aspects. So what we do is we diagnose based on the presence or absence of certain behaviours. Such, such as? as Oh, social communication difficulties is a key one. So difficulties in interacting socially and communicating, but also what we call repetitive and restricted behaviours. Uh, uh, and th they typically manifest as hand mannerisms um, or, or in routines that are very challenging to um, overcome. And sometimes intellectual disabilities there too. Oh, look, absolutely. And these are the things that are often associate with autism, such as quite significant language impairment as well as intellectual disability. But it's really important to say that these aren't part of the core features uh, of autism. They often associated with autism. So in a significant proportion, between 30 and 40 percent um, of individuals on the autism spectrum, uh, we do see intellectual disability. And why is it called a spectrum? It's a very good question and it's exactly um, uh, the, the key point that you brought up before. It's that, that we actually can see the core behaviours that we use to diagnose autism, which is social and communication difficulties, as well as repetitive behaviours in individuals really with and without intellectual disabilities. So from individuals who are able to hold down jobs, um, um, communicate quite freely, um, have, have uh, romantic relationships and, and, and have full independence all the way through to individuals who really do struggle with independence. So how is it currently diagnosed and when? Uh, yeah, it's, uh, traditionally, we don't start therapy until after a diagnosis. And diagnosis is typically at the very earliest between two and three years of age. And that's really because that's the first age at which we can go. That child there is clearly showing the behaviours that we use to diagnose autism. And it's thought that before that age, actually the behaviours are very difficult to understand. And it takes quite a lot of training, something called the Griffiths, I think it is, that it takes quite a lot of training to actually do the testing properly. Yes, absolutely. There's, it's, it's a very difficult thing to identify um, children who are developing differently because uh, uh, behaviours such as language are very variable and they don't necessarily associate with autism. So you have to have a very trained eye as well as specific instruments, but also a lot um, of experience. And, and last year, the National Guideline for Autism Diagnosis actually brought that uh, all together into one document and said, this is the training you require. 
And the interventions, and we've, we've covered this for many times over many years, do make a difference. I mean, the child in the corner of the nursery school um, with, you know, not, not banging their head against the wall, that's really a stereotype of the past. Oh, without question. And, and uh, the, the challenge when it comes to autism is that the interventions are often very labour intensive. So we use behavioural therapies, which is essentially using specific ways to help children and adults on the autism spectrum learn. And these have been shown over time to be very effective. However, there is still a long way to go. And that was really the impetus for this study. So tell us about this study, because you were trying to identify children, you know, babies who might then develop autism later yes. and then intervene. That what did you do? Look, together with our colleagues at La Trobe University and the Autism CRC and the WA Child Development Service, what, what we did is that we started to see, can we actually identify children before a diagnostic age at two? Can we identify them at 12 months and show in little infants who might be on a path um, to develop social communication difficulties? They don't have autism, but they might be at a greater um, a chance of going on to but develop But not all autism. would go on to autism. Absolutely not. It's a really important point. And so, so how do you identify the babies in the first place? Were they developmentally delayed or what? Well, no, yes, that's exactly right. And we, we actually worked hand in glove with a number of uh, our state government health departments to say, if you receive referrals for children uh, at very young age, are we able to call up the parents and screen them to identify, are there small social communication behaviours that might indicate a greater chance of going on to develop differently? So you did a trial and you intervened with a video, with video learning. Tell me how that worked. Yeah, it's a really, it's a really interesting thing. Look, the therapy that what we're trying to do is to try and help parents understand how their baby communicates and, and then how they can best communicate uh, to help their child's ba uh, brain development. And you video now, that and give them feedback. We do. The, the, the best thing that parents can do in developing their brain, their child's brain is having back and forth interactions. And sometimes that is different when a, difficult when a baby is developing differently. The video interaction helps us to videotape uh, the parents uh, and the interacting with the child and actually show how they can better interact um, with their their, their little baby. And we do that over a course of about five months and 10 sessions. And when you followed up in this trial, what did you find? Look, where we're at at the moment is we, we, we looked at the um, children, we enrolled over 100 children um, and, and then looked at them immediately. So six months um, uh, after they were enrolled in the trial, immediately after the therapy. And what we found is that there was actually no improvement or no reduction in the level of autism symptoms um, uh, in the children, in the baby who's, who received the therapy compared to those who didn't. And that just really shows us that actually those core autism behaviours, social and communication impairments and repetitive behaviours, they're very core to who they individual is and they're very difficult to shift. But the parents liked it. The parents loved it. And, and one of the really key findings is, is that we also found that the parents um, reported uh, who received the intervention, the parents reported that better language um, of their children compared to those uh, uh, children who didn't receive uh, the therapy. And that was around, they were saying around 15 words more at the end of the um, therapy. That's, that's pretty good. Look, it really is, and we were very excited about this. There is a caveat, though, in the sense that the parents were not blind to the intervention, in the sense that we could not blind them because they were involved in the intervention. Mm. So there always remains the possibility that this effect might be just due to an expectation bias. They thought the therapy would be better, and so they rated their child better. And we can't get around that. However, we're still excited about the finding. 
Now, just briefly, we also there's a West Australian study which looked at genetic and environmental factors and the cause or associated with autism. Tell us about that study. Yes, I think this is a very important study. Now, as I mentioned, uh, uh, autism uh, is a genetic condition, but we still don't really understand how those genetic factors um, uh, play out. What this study did is it, it studied over 2 million people, um, and in there, there were 20,000 um, individuals on the autism spectrum. And what they did is they looked at how autism occurrence um, uh, occurs across pedigrees or across family trees. And what they s- found is that um, more than 80% of the variance in autism occurrence uh, uh, is due to the genetic factors in those family trees. And that's that's essentially reinforcing something that we already know, that autism involves a very strong genetic component. So 80%. Um, and does that mean you've got parents who are on the spectrum? Oh, absolutely. And, and we're seeing that more and more. And so um, uh, certainly we know that if um, there's an, a mother or a father on the spectrum themselves, then they do have a higher chance of having a child um, uh, who goes on to develop autism. But certainly this study looked across the broad pedigrees in cousins and everyone, and it really provided a very deep understanding that autism is a very strongly genetic condition. Now, with environmental factors, we know that immunisation is not a risk factor. It's cost us millions of dollars to find that, to confirm that from fraudulent scientific research. But people have often blamed the mother. There's things in the mother like having a caesarean section, like uh, low maternal IQ and things like that. What did, the, what did the study say about maternal factors? Look, there was no difference in terms of maternal factors that might influence uh, the variance in this study. So it's essentially saying that actually the genetic uh, uh, makeup of that individual who goes on to develop autism is by far the strongest uh, uh, factor in that child going on to develop autism than anything else. Any clues about environmental factors? Not really, not really. And and, and um, uh, that, that's still something that we're on the hunt for. It is absolutely likely that genetic factors may be exacerbated by environmental factors. Um, um, but that doesn't say that we've identified them yet. And certainly if there was any low-hanging fruit, we would have found them already. Andrew, thanks for joining us. Thanks, Norman. Professor Andrew Whitehouse is at the Autism Cooperative Research Centre and the Telephone Kids Institute in Perth. And you're listening to RN's Health Report with me, Norman Swan. Stroke is still one of the commonest causes of death and disability in Australia. It's usually caused by a clot blocking blood flow to the brain, but also can be from a haemorrhage. The treatment of people with a stroke has undergone a revolution in the last decade or so. For those caused by a, a clot, you can have the clot dissolved or removed surgically if you get to the hospital in time, and we've covered that on several occasions. What happens after that, though, is incredibly important. If you're admitted to a stroke unit, you do better than going to a general ward, and that's because the staff in a stroke unit really know how to keep you as well as possible and start rehabilitation promptly. But how promptly and what form of rehab works best? An Australian trial in 2015 suggested that commencing rehab in the first 24 hours didn't seem to be of benefit and may in some people be harmful. So a new trial is commencing. Julie Bernhardt led the original trial and is leading this one. Julie is Professor of Neuroscience at the Florey Institute in Melbourne. Welcome to the Health Report, Julie. Great to be here, Norman. So just remind us briefly of that trial in 2015. We wanted to understand if had we... uh, introduced rehabilitation uh, much earlier and more intensively on top of usual care, did that show benefit for people uh, early after their stroke? Any kind of rehab? 
Uh, it was mobility-based. So this is often where we begin when we first start uh, our interventions. We do a lot of work where we assess uh, people's um, significant impairments, but the disability, getting them back up uh, and starting to move is one of the early things that we do as part of rehabilitation. And you showed there was no benefit, in fact, some harm. Yeah, well, we started the 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 journey really back in 2000 where I'd seen a really interesting piece of research from Norway uh, that had looked at stroke unit care with a strong rehabilitation focus versus general medical ward care and found a really large impact for their intervention and they put a lot of it down to early rehab and so we went on to have a look at that uh, particular stroke unit, protocolised this intervention and really set to to develop the evidence base. Our early phase two trials, so these are the smaller ones that we do to check that we can actually do it, it's feasible and safe. That study that was finished in 2006 looked quite promising. So that prompted us to go on to this large trial. And I think it was very surprising, uh, the result for the, the large study. It was a, an order of magnitude larger. We went to 56 hospitals. Uh, there were over 2,000 patients involved in this trial. And we were really comparing what is usual care to this usual care plus intensive training after stroke. And we did indeed find that when you had this early onset, more intensive training, that people were less likely to have a good outcome. And that sort of shocked a large number of people. So what's usual care? Well, there's our problem, and that's what's prompted this new trial, Norman. Uh, when we look at usual care, it can be seven days resting in bed. It can be uh, two or three days resting in bed and then a large uh, amount of training, or it can be a very small amount of training. And so one of the challenges that we had at the end of this trial was that although usual care was better uh, and overall had a lower dose of intervention, to provide recommendations that were meaningful was extremely difficult. Because I think you found in, the, in a sub-analysis that short bursts, short bursts of exercise in the first 24, 48 hours made a difference. Yeah, and it's not just the first uh, 24 to 48, it's actually over that first 14 days that we were studying. And I think it's, a, it's thinking of it like, uh, are we giving someone a pill a day of a certain dose or are we giving them three smaller doses of pill? And, you know, that's the kind of thing that we were starting to see as we delved deeply into the data from the trial. So what are you studying in this trial? What's on the menu? On the menu is after a, a couple of years of looking in detail at our, at our data is that we identified not one or two pockets of benefit and good risk um, uh, profile as well, but actually for those with mild stroke and for those with more moderate conditions, we actually identified four different uh, combinations of interventions uh, for each of those strata or levels of, of patient. And that made us sit back and go, well, how can we actually address this? How can we study this uh, problem? And we turned our 
our thoughts and minds to adaptive clinical trials. So for this trial, um, it's a new model. It's considered to be uh, both ethically uh, good and more efficient as well. We can study four different interventions at the one time. And over the course of the trial, as we see how people respond to those interventions, two of those arms will disappear, the ones that show the least benefit. So some will drop off. Correct. And that leaves us with um, both a standard arm that we've kept all the way through, which is not usual care. And that's a, a big distinction in this trial. So could it be that just any rehabilitation is fine? Uh, well, I think the fact that we've shown harm uh, in this earlier study is indicative that the answer is no. I think there is a certain level of uh, intervention that's going to be in the Goldilocks range, you know, not too much, not too little, just right. And I think our challenge really for rehab is working out what that is. So a loved one goes into, you know, goes into you know, Royal Melbourne ED, gets the clot busting or the, the clot removed and goes into the stroke unit of the Royal Melbourne. Um, what should patients' families be asking for in the meantime? In the meantime, I think we can only go with the uh, information that we have available from the first trial, which is the most largest and most robust evidence base that we have so far. So go easy in the first 24 hours. A little bit. Go easy in the first 24 hours. Start within 48 hours. And it's probably little and often. Okay. So ask those questions. And um, we'll have you back um, within the decade to, to tell us what the results were. Love to. Thanks very much, Norman. That's Julie Bernhardt, who is um, a professor of neuroscience at the Florey Institute in Melbourne. It's very uncomfortable to get something in your eye. It leads to irritation, watering, and often your vision is blurry. That's because the cornea, the clear window in the front of your eye, is one of the most sensitive parts of your body, with, believe it or not, more nerves going through it than even your fingertips. Now, imagine if you had an infection in the eye and the infection was spreading. Imagine that the infection was so bad, it actually melts your cornea and you develop a hole or perforation. That's the reality for over 4,000 Australians every year and has lifelong implications for vision and quality of life. Associate Professor Chamin Samarwikrama is one of the ABC's top five scientists this year who's been learning the art of broadcasting with us over the last few weeks. Chamin is an eye surgeon and vision scientist with the University of Sydney and Westmead Hospital. The cornea is his thing, and he's put together this for the health report. I've been having my eye treated for the last 10 years. I had a herpes virus in that eye, and the treatment was quite successful for the last 10 years. This is Graeme Lowe. He's a patient of mine. And for the last 10 years now, he's had the herpes virus, which is the cold sore virus, in his left eye. It didn't worry me, and the continuation of drops every day of the week for 10 years has been amazing, so I didn't expect anything to happen to it. Just like the herpes virus can cause cold sores on the mouth, it can also get into the eye and cause damage. Graham was managing the condition well, but then, last December... My eye became perforated in the morning and I didn't realise what the perforation was but all of a sudden it exploded and all this fluid just came out of my left eye and the pain through my temple, I got extremely frightened. I've never experienced pain like that before in my eye. This is a medical emergency. Yeah, they raced me straight down to the eye clinic, had a look at it and they said, Mr Lowe, you've um, got a hole in your eye, it's been perforated. 
This is very serious. To understand what happened to Graham, you have to understand a bit about the eye. The cornea is the clear window in the front of the eye. It's the cornea that does the bulk of the focusing of the light that allows you to see. Anything that damages the cornea, like a perforation, can result in permanent vision loss. Corneal perforations are more common than the average person would think. I mean, we think that about four to four and a half thousand patients suffer a corneal perforation per year. Dr. Dana Rabai is an ophthalmologist or eye surgeon who specialises in corneal surgery. She works at Westmead Hospital in Sydney and is a senior lecturer at the University of Sydney. The two main causes of corneal perforation are infection, and that's quite common in the elderly. Trauma, sharp trauma especially, is the other common cause of corneal perforation, and that's more common in a younger working group population, but also in developing countries. Trauma is often seen in tradespeople who can get metal or wire flicking into their eyes. Infections, on the other hand, can come from things like the herpes virus, which is what Graham has, but it's also seen in people who wear contact lenses who don't observe proper contact lens hygiene when taking them out or putting them in. Corneal perforations are a devastating injury. They need to be treated rapidly if there's any hope of saving the eye. Suddenly I said, well, what do you do now? And he said, well, strangely enough, we use superglue. And uh, me being an ex-motor mechanic, I thought that was quite peculiar. So he said, yes, we're going to use superglue, so we'll um, go ahead and this is how we do it. So he had his little kit out with superglue and the patch, put the superglue over the top of the eye, dry the eye out first in a very small patch. And then he said, look, you should be right. The current gold standard is the use of something called cyanoacrylate glue. This is a type of tissue glue. We use it to seal cuts on the skin. It belongs to the same family as the superglue you buy from the hardware store, and its job, simply put, is to plug the hole in the eye. If the cornea is perforated, it means the integrity of the whole eye has been compromised. The contents of the eye are open to the external environment. There's risk of infection. There's risk of leakage. So the first thing we want to do is to seal the eye to return the globe integrity. We put a little a dab of that on the corneal perforated area and we hope that the glue sticks, that it stops the leakage, that the eye reforms, and we do that with tissue glue. The problem with cyanoacrylate glue is that it doesn't work very well, as Graham Lowe found out. I woke up the next morning, went back down the eye clinic, and they took one look at it and said, it's gone, the, the glue's gone. I said, where's it gone to? He said, I don't know. He said, well, I'm going to have to re-glue it again. So then I had someone else re-glue my eye in the, still the same fashion with the kit. And then back to the ward again, and the third day, the same thing happened again, and the glue gone. Graham is not alone in his experience. Eye surgeon Dana Rabai again. In up to a third, sometimes even up to a half of patients, there is still a persistent leak around the glue. Either the glue is irregular or it falls off or it loosens or it's not applied as it should be. Up to half of these patients have to have several gluing sessions and, and even a proportion of those still go on to have a persistent leak and they then need to have an emergency corneal transplant. Not only that, cyanoacrylate glue is toxic to the eye. So even if it does work and seals the eye in the short term, it results in a big scar that obscures vision. So why do we still use it? Simply because it's the only treatment we have available. 
It can be a source of infection. It slows down corneal healing. It's rough. It's uncomfortable for the patient. It needs contact lens placed on top. Currently, we don't have anything else. It gets worse. If the glue doesn't work and keeps falling off, you need a corneal transplant to fix the integrity of the eye. And this is major transplant surgery. If the glue does work, you end up with a large scar that you often can't see through. So you still need a corneal transplant to allow you to see again. Either way, you end up with a corneal transplant. It's a lose-lose situation. Only having one eye, it's, it just completely changed my life altogether. Been quite emotional. Um, been a motor mechanic all my life. I struggle to, to pick up things now. And then pick up like a glass of water. It's another half an inch away from my hand. And to pick up a tool, it's not there. It's further away. Picking up screws, things like that. That's really hard. Corneal transplant tissue is a scarce resource. We're lucky in Australia and have resources like the Lions Eye Bank of New South Wales that can provide corneal tissue for use. They rely on generous organ donors who give the gift of sight with every donation. But globally, only one in every 70 patients who need a corneal transplant can get it. So is there hope for the future? Many research teams in Australia and around the world are working on this very real problem, including my team based at the Westmead Institute for Medical Research in Sydney. Our team, collaborating with world leaders in Canada and Sweden, are exploring the use of collagen, which is the building blocks of the cornea itself. We're trying to make a new glue to replace the flawed cyanoacrylate glue. Damien Hunter, a postdoctoral research scientist, has been working on this new glue project with me. It's made from a collagen-like peptide, which, much like collagen, it's capable of self-assembling into a triple helix, which regular collagen forms. One of the qualities which makes it really useful as a glue is that, depending on the temperature and pH it is, it can self-assemble into these triple helices, turning itself into a gel. That gel-like quality makes it a prime candidate for a glue that goes into the eye. And we've conducted some preliminary animal trials in rabbits to test how effective our glue is in sealing corneal perforations. Results at, at a macroscopic level, that is, just looking, looking at, at it, it, were really quite good. By about a week post-surgery, in most animals, you wouldn't have actually been able to tell that they'd had surgery at all, save for a slightly small opaque spot where the glue itself was situated. And even this spot started to go transparent over the month where we observed these animals. After a month, we found that... There was a 0% failure rate of the seals. There wasn't any obvious scarring or inflammation and there were no blood vessels growing across the cornea. So, a 3 out of 10 failure rate with the old glue down to no failures with the new glue. And things look equally promising on a microscopic level as well. The hope is that if the body tolerates it, the perforation can be sealed and the glue can be left in place indefinitely. Our tests so far have, have shown that the corneal epithelium, this, the skin of the cornea, if you like, grows over the glue, and that the keratocytes, that's the cells inside the collagen layer of the cornea, and those migrate into the glue as well. It looks very much like this will sit in place and the cornea will essentially just grow and regenerate around it. This collagen glue not only seals the eye better than what is being used at the moment, 
but also allows the cornea to heal in a way that appears to allow the cells in the cornea to integrate into the glue without inducing scarring. So there's multiple steps that we're still pursuing before we can actually say conclusively that this is better than the current gold standard under every circumstance. However, the studies we've done so far do show that at least under the circumstances we've tested, it's doing very well. There still is a fair way to go before this technology is available for use in humans. But it holds the promise of treating patients like Graham in a way that not only seals his corneal perforation, but allows his cornea to heal and avoid the need for a corneal transplantation in the future. And given the global shortage of transplant tissue, this has huge implications in the way we treat corneal perforations. With each small step forward, we move closer and closer to the holy grail of tissue regeneration. In the meantime, Graham's holding out hope that his transplant will be successful. If I get 50% vision, then the other good eye is still going to help it. And I'm 73 years of age now, and I think, well, I'm still young in a sense, so I just um, want to, if I can walk, walk my dog and see the trees, I'm happy. Graham Lowe ending that report from Dr. Chamin Samarawikrama, which was produced by The Health Report's James Bullen. And that's it for The Health Report for this week. I'm Norman Swan. See you next time. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.